Hello everybody and welcome to the first ever Thames Valley Court and Crime podcast created by NewsQuest. In this podcast we will be exploring some of the biggest crime stories from Berkshire, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. We'll also bring you the latest from your local courts so you're up to date with the cases making the headlines. But we won't just be bringing you news, we'll be looking at all the things in future episodes of this podcast. Yeah, that's right. We're hoping to bring you interviews with senior police figures, features on some of the region's most notorious crimes from years gone by, topical discussions on crime headlines from across the UK, and much more. Each week, we will start with one big theme, exploring the ins and outs of that particular topic. And each podcast, we'll also round up the court and crime stories we have been working on, which you, have made, which you may have missed from the week gone by. As well as this, we'll be previewing some of the big cases coming up in the courts, so you're in the know. So let's introduce ourselves. I'm Ollie, the court and crime reporter for Berkshire. I work across all of NewsQuest's Berkshire titles. So that's the Reading Chronicle, Bratton News, Windsor Observer and the Slough Observer. You'll often find me at Reading Crown Court or Reading Magistrates Court during the week. And I'm George, the court and crime reporter for Buckinghamshire. I work on the Bucks Free Press. You'll often find me at Aylesbury Crown Court, Wickham Magistrates Court and various other places. Both George and I have been doing our roles for about six months now, and we've covered some big cases in the courts in the past half a year. But perhaps the most notorious case we've worked on so far is the tragic murder of 13-year-old Ollie Stevens in Reading. And that's what we'll be discussing this week as we look back on one of the area's most chilling crimes in recent years. So what happened? Ollie Stevens was stabbed to death by two teenage boys at Bugs Bottom Field in Emma Green, Reading, on January 3rd, 2021. He was lured there by a teenage girl who set him up to be ambushed by two boys who had a falling out with Ollie on social media. After a fist fight between the older boy and Ollie, the younger boy took out a knife and stabbed him once to the chest and once to the back. The boys and the girl fled the scene and left Ollie to die. Within an hour and a half of the attack, Ollie was dead. The girl later admitted to manslaughter and the two boys were convicted of murder following a five-week trial in July. At a sentencing in September, the younger boy was told he'll serve a minimum of 13 years in prison, while the older boy was handed a 12-year minimum sentence. The girl was handed a three-year and two-month sentence, but she could be released by the end of the current school year. More on that a little bit later. So Ollie, you were at the trial of the two boys who murdered Ollie Stevens. What did you glean from the trial about why this happened? Yeah, so I was in court for most of the trial, I think, in total I missed two or three days um, from the five-week trial, um, and the thing that became apparent during the, 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 the trying of these two teenagers was that this was basically uh, a tragic killing that came about from a war of words on social media. So both Ollie and the two boys, um, who can't be named for legal reasons, uh, they were. They all used social media a lot. They used Snapchat, WhatsApp, um, an app called House Party, um, and I think it came out during the trial that Ollie and uh, two of these boys and uh, some of their friends were all in this big group chat. And uh, at one point, um, the two boys posted a video of um, what someone patterning uh, a, a small boy. So patterning is a, a kind of slang term for humiliating. And um, Ollie saw this and then screenshot it and sent it to the boy's brother. Um, and, and both the boys um, convicted of, of murdering Ollie saw this and, and, and 
you know, essentially accuse Ollie of snaking them, of, of snitching on them. And this um, kind of started a war of words between Ollie and the boys. And from there, it kind of spiraled out of control. And in the end, as, as, as we're now well aware, um, the girl who admitted to Ollie's manslaughter um, did indeed set Ollie up. Um, she agreed with the older boy to lure him to Bugs Bottom in Emma Green in near Cavisham, um to the site. And then, so Ollie thought he was just meeting her to share some tobacco. Um, when in actual fact, she was conversing with the older boy all the time and uh, he had brought with him the younger boy and they um, they ambushed him at, at Bugs Bottom. So would you say this was the case that originated through social media? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, it was revealed actually at the sentencing uh, at the end of September that um, police spoke to 50 children and, all, and seized 69,500 pages of evidence from their phones. They got this evidence from scouring 11 different social media platforms. I mean, they also seized 2,000 voice notes from the 41 devices they recovered. And before the sentencing came in, I, I spoke to Andy Howard, the, the lead investigator in the case, about the challenges uh, the social media aspects of this investigation gave this team. A lot of the evidence like played in court came from social media. Um, what, what challenges and benefits did this provide for, for the investigation team? Yeah, um, challenge um, was the volume, um, quite simply. Um, the volume and the number of platforms uh, that were being used, uh, I, I believe 11 social media platforms were identified as potentially being relevant uh, in this investigation, i.e. they were platforms that were used by young people uh, within, within the investigation. Um, we technology around this, our, our ability to uh, obtain, acquire social media data um, is developing all the time. Um, and, and I think it, it, it's fair to say if, if this investigation had, had, had happened about six, nine months earlier, um, we probably wouldn't have been in a position to acquire as much of the material that we did. Um, and, and I say our, our digital forensics unit did some fantastic work. They did some really, really top quality work to, to acquire this data. Um, having acquired it is one thing. One of the benefits that that did provide to us, you, you mm. asked around what the challenges and what the benefits were. The, the benefits were that because we were able to acquire so much social media material and build the case around that, it meant that we didn't have to call any of the young people to come and give live evidence in court. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that was a strategy that we identified very early on with our with our council. Um, and, um, and and that had distinct benefits because, you know, um, clearly there was a huge benefit in not, um, you know, calling young people to give evidence in court, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary. Really fascinating clip there from Andy Howard. So what do we know about these boys? The, the press haven't been allowed to name them, Ollie. Can you tell us sort of why, why that is? Yeah, that's right. We're, the press weren't allowed to name any of the defendants uh, because both the two boys and the girl—they're both fourteen years. They're all fourteen years old, um, and under Section Forty-Five of the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act, nineteen ninety-nine, uh, press and anyone else is not allowed to publish the identity of the defendants because they are under eighteen years old. So in terms of what we actually know about them, um, there were a lot of details that came out during the trial, which uh, because of this Section 45 order, the press was not allowed to report. So I am in the privileged position of knowing a little bit more about these boys, uh, knowing what they look like, knowing their names, um, knowing where they went to school, 
than I'm allowed to say. I can tell you a few things. Um, and I guess the key thing is that they both had a, a big interest in knives. There was several videos and images shown in court of them holding, playing or posing with knives. Uh, the prosecution, um, Alison Morgan, um, played a particular video repeatedly um, during the trial. It, it must have cropped up at least um, half a dozen times of uh, the two boys playing with a knife um, where one of them had a knife in their hand and was, was playfully um, jabbing it towards the other boy who had a, a stick in his a stick in his arms. Uh, but the older boy dropped the stick in his arms and um, the younger boy said, you know, what now, what now? You know, as in, you know, I've got you backed into a corner. You know, I've, you know, you know I, I could stab you now, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of, um, a big part of the trial was was just how interested they were in knives, and I believe I think it was the prosecution said, you know, you and your friends, you had this kind of culture of, of having this interest in knives, and and the boys defended it by saying, it wasn't a kind of fascination, it was just an interest, and I think the younger boy, if I remember correctly, had a collection of of two or three knives, and after the the uh, verdicts came in, police released a video of of him. Uh, recording himself playing with one of these knives, you know, just which kind of shows the um, the casual nature in which they, um, you know, obviously knives are such a such a, a threatening thing, but these boys were just so casual about having these these um, deadly weapons in their possession. In terms of their temperament in court, both boys, when they were giving evidence, appeared uh, kind of monotone and a bit kind of. Um, um, lost for words sometimes, so the younger boy in particular gave very short answers, one or two word answers, um, during most of his, of his evidence, uh, whereas the older boy was a, was a similar but also showed a bit more kind of respect for the court. He chose to stand and address uh, Judge Norton a bit more formally. Um, I remember when the verdicts came in, looking over at both of them to see if they showed any emotion, um, and when it was revealed that the jury found them both guilty of murder. They both appeared to have no emotion. They both, neither of them seemed to react particularly um, noticeably. Um, and it was the same again during their sentencings. And would you say there were any real sort of standout moments from the trial? Perhaps the one thing that um, was, was particularly standout was when it was about halfway through the trial and... Um, the defence for the younger boy had submitted an application to summon a doctor to court um, to um, give evidence on behalf of the younger boy. Um, they sent an application to Her Honour Judge Norton and Judge Norton considered um, the application, was making notes on the side of the application and um, these notes she was making were, were supposed to be to herself. And at one point she um, was reading a particular passage from the application and uh, made a note to herself which, which, which said, what the F are you on about? Kind of, um, you know, referencing a confusing bit of, of legal, legalese from, from uh, the defence uh, for the younger boy. And by mistake she had sent the application back to the defence counsel, Timothy Raggett QC, um, with her notes for herself still attached 
So the defence counsel actually saw this note which said, what the F are you on about? Um, which then prompted them to uh, um, plead for the judge to recuse herself from the trial, meaning that the trial itself would have collapsed. It would have had to have started again if uh, if Judge Norton had agreed to this request. But uh, Judge Norton, I think, I think it's probably about the third week into the trial, got to court early. Um, it was something that I'd actually missed the first bit of, but then having arrived in court at 10 o'clock, um, I managed to catch the last bit of it. And um, Judge Norton was explaining herself, explaining why she had written this note and basically explaining that she wasn't going to recuse herself from the trial because it was such a, a, you know, a big trial and the mistake she made was unfortunate, but it was in no way... Um, leading to prejudice or leading to an unfair trial. So that was something that we couldn't report until after the trial because it, it could have prejudiced uh, the jury's mind if um, if I'd reported it during the trial. But um, it came out afterwards and um, it was a particularly interesting uh, part of this five-week five week beast. And you've written all about that um, particular email and, and, and the scandal that followed uh, on, on the Reading Chronicle website, so I urge anyone listening to this to, to give that a read. Um, but, but what was it like for you being in, in the courtroom for such a long and you know, such a huge trial? Yeah, it was, it was, I think, huge is the right words because um, it was covered in the national press. I think that's because of just how shocking the trial was. Um, you know, it gained such notoriety because of the young ages of of the three defendants and of Ollie. I think that's what made it, you know, as I said, that's what made it so shocking. But actually being in the court, it was, it was very, very surreal because, you know, I was, when I was on the press bench, I was metres away from from both of the boys when they were giving evidence in the witness box. So, you know, it, it's kind of chilling in a sense to be so close to, to, to two young boys found guilty of murder, um, knowing their names and, and the horrible actions that they carried out. Um, it was very difficult not being able to report a lot of a lot of the details about them, um, and personally, I found the days very very long and tiring. Um, I, actually, the um, the days were shortened because the defenders were so young. They every day of the trial was from half ten until four o'clock, but um, I still found them very very long and very tiring. Um, so you know, given that I'm you know, I'm, I'm merely reporting on it, you know, to think it must have been incredibly difficult for the parents of Ollie Stevens to have to sit there every day through five weeks of trial um, and listening to, to what happened to their son must have been incredibly, incredibly taxing and exhausting for them. But George, you actually spoke to Ollie's parents, didn't you? You um, spoke to them just before the sentence came in. How were they and what did they say about Ollie and what did they say about the trial? That's right, I was very lucky and, and very privileged to, to get the chance to, to meet with Ollie's parents, uh, Amanda and Stuart Stevens. Um, I was invited to, to speak with them um, through the police just, just ahead of the sentencing a few weeks ago and they were very open and, and candid with me about everything that they had been through over, over the past sort of eight or nine months since they lost their son. Um, we, we spoke for, for about an hour and it was, you know, at times extremely emotional. They they were were happy to, to, to go really into the into the quite unpleasant details about how they're feeling. That they told me that still today the emotion is so raw. They 
they haven't really been able to to go into his bedroom and and, and you know tidy things up. They, they said um, Ollie's father said that he still sees him in, in out of the corner of his eye, and you know just expecting him to to come home any minute. And I think that just shows that still it is it's so difficult for that for them to to deal with. But that being said, they were incredibly brave to to, to come and speak to to the media. Um, and you know, I, I feel quite quite lucky that, that I got the chance to talk to them. You know, some of the things they were talking about were were very kind of moving. The way that they, um, the way that they they did, they didn't really feel um, anger towards the 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 children that, that killed their son. They sort of said that they don't feel much at all towards them. But ang- anger is kind of something that they're they they've kind of left at the door. They're, not 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 moving on from it, but just that they've already been through hell. That there's there's they can't really go go deeper than, than that, which is heartbreaking, really. But I think you know the only people that can really understand their position are are the parents that have um, that have lost have lost children. Um, you know they they were incredibly brave, and I feel like I I gained a lot by by speaking to them just. Just from from a human point of view, you know, to, to see people that have been through so much but were still pleasant, polite, friendly, and and you know, nice nice people, and it, it makes you you feel even 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 more sad to, to feel that these were just extremely good, normal people that have been subjected to the most horrific horrific crime. Um, and all I can say really is that I, I wish them well and, and thank them again for um, for taking the time to speak with me. And we've, we've got a clip now from um, some of the words that they, they shared with me. Still, I still expect him to knock on the door. I still see him out the corner of my eye, mm. walking around the kitchen, emptying the cupboards, leaving litter and food and stuff everywhere. But it's... Because mm. at home, everything's just as he left it, really. We haven't tidied anything mm. away or put anything yeah. away. And I... I can't imagine I'll ever want to do that. Mm. I mean, throughout the trial, obviously, you saw the the defendants. And mm. how, do, how do you feel towards them? I just didn't tend to look. I mm. tended yeah, to I'm look away. Yeah, I've got no feelings when they're concerned. No yeah. feelings, yeah. But it, it was, the first day was a shock. Yeah. You didn't expect to be that close to them. But it was COVID, so the court were obeying COVID. Mm. And, um, but after, you kind of get used to it, but you... Don't, I don't personally don't see them as people anymore. Mm. So, to me, they're irrelevant. We're in this situation because of them, but yeah. mm. they don't mean anything to me. Mm. Do you feel the same, Amanda? Yeah, I don't. I, all I've felt throughout this whole thing is sadness. There isn't a feeling of anger towards them. It's just it's, it's sadness at the situation that's been created. So I got to speak to the parents just ahead of the sentencing. Ollie, you were there on the day. It, it wasn't long ago. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about what happened? The younger boy got a life sentence with a minimum of 13 years in prison. The older boy got a life sentence with a minimum of 12 years in prison. And the girl who admitted manslaughter uh, got three years and two months in prison. But because but because um, she'll only serve half of that in detention and because she's already spent 200 days in custody, it could be that she is released um, by the end of the current school year in July. Um, so she could actually be out relatively soon. Ultimately, it's, it's Ollie's family who will, will serve a life sentence. And um, you know, given the horrific crimes 
against their son. Um, it was an absolute privilege for, for them to speak to us. And um, we can only um, wish them peace as they carry on with their lives. We're now moving on to the next bit of the podcast, uh, where we'll take a look at some of the lighter headlines you might have missed from weeks gone by. So, George, you're up first. What have you got for us? That's right. So the, the first story I've got for you today is a, a man from High Wycombe who breached a court order by sleeping in his own house. Um, so this is a guy called Andrew Beasley. Um, he's 59 years old, and basically he, he lives in a, in a road called Bevelwood Gardens in High Wycombe. And... Uh, Police had essentially shut down this house due to some sort of antisocial and, and drug-related activities, but they found him inside taking a nap in, in bed. Isn't it usually the case that people who actually live in the home don't have to comply with this order? Yeah, that's right. So, so quite often you'll see that these, you know, these houses have been shut down by the police and by the courts because they're sort of suspected criminal activity but yeah normally the, the landlord or, or the, the tenant or whoever the, the homeowner is allowed to to get in um, but in this case um, Mr Beasley um, who wasn't 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 allowed to to go in there, there was some suspicion that he um, I think initially that he was involved in in the sort of drug drug activity but I think it, it's kind of come come to light that he was potentially being exploited by by criminals and and so in this case he even though he technically broke the law by sleeping in his own house, he, he was given a conditional discharge, which mm. essentially means that he, he will face no, no punishment unless he gets into trouble sort of again within the next 12 months and, and then yeah. he'll have to, to face the courts. Did he give any, any reason as to why he'd gone back to, back to the house? Well, <clears throat> he, was, he was homeless. That, that, that was essentially why. He, the fact that he wasn't allowed to, to go into his home, own house meant that he literally had, had nowhere to stay. So I think... You have to have some sympathy there because he obviously was was a little bit desperate. But fortunately, it seems like he has, um, you know, not been punished in this case, and, and that seems like probably the, the right outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, what, what else have we got for us? Um, so we've got another guy. This is another story from High Wycombe. A guy called Daniel Andrews who who stole eighty pounds worth of steak uh, from Marks and Spencers. Um, so he um, he didn't go to jail. Fortunately for him. Um, he was um, given a suspended sentence. Do you think he was uh, planning a big barbecue or something? Yeah, I don't know if he had... Um, <laughs> it was in August, wasn't plans. it? It was in August, so it might have been uh, sunny during then. Yeah, potentially. So, basically, Andrews was already serving a suspended sentence when he, um, when he had, had previously stolen a load of spirits um, from, from Sainsbury's. Um, and in this case, even though despite his um, history of offending, he, he still managed to avoid going to jail. Instead, he was given a community order where he has to sort of undergo some sort of um, rehabilitation activity, hopefully, so he will um, move on from, from his criminal criminal ways. But yeah, you, you have to wonder kind of what he had planned if, he, if one day he was stealing. Mm, yeah, they, or maybe he was lured by the MS adverts. You know, these are not just any steaks, these are MS steaks, and <laughs> it's, clearly can't resist. It's true, I mean, if you had to, to, to get some steaks, I think MS is, is definitely the place you, you want to go. <laughs> you, can't really, you can't really beat them. Although £82 for six steaks, I mean, that does sound steep. I mean, MS yeah. there a bit, a bit of daylight. Yeah, and uh, our. Commenters on Buckley Press have been having a bit of a field day with this, haven't they? That's great. That's so true. Like, that, that's one thing with with the readers. You can always rely on them to find the uh, to find the fun and, and to find the the, the, the jokes in, in these stories. One commenter said, um, "One more mistake, and the judge will have beef with him. He won't mince his words. He'll be for a roasting. <laughs> They'll give him a ribbing topside when he tells his ox tale." 
So I think we should. Uh, I think we should give that guy as a, a job as a as a sub editor. Unbelievable. Get him to do our headlines for us. Unbelievable punning there. Yeah. There's, there's a few others. What's his beef? Um, someone says it's a cowardly crime. Yeah, that, that just about works. Amazing, amazing. Um, and yeah, so you have you have to uh, have to put your hand out there to um, and, and round of applause for all the for all the yeah. readers. With, yeah, very good. With great. Love that. Love that. Great puns. So, Ollie, what were some of the um, more entertaining stories that you've been um, you've been on in, in Reading Crown Court over the last few weeks? Um, yeah, so there's, there's been a few, um, two that stick out. Uh, one uh, was the sentencing of a 50-year-old woman from Bratnell. Her name was Karen. Uh, she has stolen £47,000 from three different employers in the past um, 16 years. Um, but last week she was being sentenced for the most recent thefts when she stole £8,000 from a Surrey-based catering company over the period of 14 months between 2018 and 2019. Wow, that's, that's impressive. I mean, what sort, of, what sort of work was she was she doing at these catering companies? So Karen was a catering manager. Um, she was in charge of uh, a particular side of the finances where she would, um, you know, liaise with the money handling companies to, to swap the cash that the, the, the company generates and uh, you know, swap that for, for coins for change. And um, through the 14 months of, of uh, siphoning this, this money away, she managed to pocket £8,000 for herself. Uh, but it came out when an employee confronted her, a, a colleague confronted her about it. And um, she had reported to police and she admitted it straight away. So I think she, she realised the game was up at that point. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, what, what she would have done for her references on her um, CV to have gone yeah. from job to job after yeah. <laughs> well, all this cash. That's the thing. So she, she stole, um, I think it was £7,000 from HP when she worked there in 2005 using, using company credit cards. And then three years later, she made £32,000 worth of personal purchases on company credit cards when she was employed by DHL. Um, and she didn't get prison sentences for either of those uh, offences and when she was sentenced last week uh, she didn't get a prison sentence then either. The um, recorder Dio QC told her this was her, her last chance and that the sword of Damocles was, was hanging over her head so uh, any more wrong moves from Karen and she could end up behind bars. Brilliant <laughs> and what else? Any, any other good ones? Yeah so this is one I spotted um, whilst I was in a different sentence I saw a man's name on the Crown Court list for Reading. His name's Cole Justice, which is a perfect bit of nominative determinism. He uh, obviously found himself in the courts. Um, he was being sentenced on Friday, October the 1st for uh, three counts of harassment, one count of criminal damage to a property and one count of sending a message conveying a threatening tone. Um, for these offences, he was sentenced to two years and eight weeks in prison. Wow, sounds like a nasty bloke. But at least justice was served. At least justice was served, yeah. Good to see the uh, justice coming through the courts, uh, quite literally. <laughs> Fantastic. So in this final section of the podcast, the two of us are just going to look ahead um, at our news list so just to see and, and share with you what we're planning on, on checking out in the courts in, in, in the near future. So... I'll start first. One of the cases I've got coming up towards the end of the month is a guy called Mohammed Asif. He's a drug dealer who was essentially caught 
arrested at Heathrow Airport as he was trying to escape the country. He, he had um, a few days earlier uh, in a property that was sort of connected with him. Police had, had uncovered nearly £100,000 worth of drugs, um, which he had kind of, he, he was involved with. Um, fortunately, the officers were able to, to, to catch him just in the nick of time, and he's due to be sentenced um, shortly in, in, the, in the Crown Courts at Aylesbury. Um, so he can probably expect to get a fairly lengthy sentence for that. Yep, and uh, I've got a few big things coming up as well. Start the trial of two men charged in connection with the death of Yannick Cupido, 24-year-old from Caversham in Reading, who was fatally stabbed um, on Valentine's Day of this year. Um, two men, as I said, have been charged. One man, um, O'Neill Joseph, 28, he was charged with murder. And another man, Reese Witherburn, uh, also from Reading, uh, who is 22, uh, was charged with assisting an offender. Perhaps by the time this podcast is out, the trial will have got underway. Um, the judge in that one, Judge Nawaz, said he thinks the trial will last three weeks. So if you are interested in that trial, make sure to keep checking back on the Running Chronicle for updates on that one. It's worth saying that both men in the trial deny the charges against them. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we're, we're hoping to, to release these every two weeks, so stay tuned in a couple of weeks' time. So for now, it's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Thank you.